Uh, so you can turn to our scripture reading for tonight, which is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through uh, 20, and that's on page 681 of the NIV Church Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, would you just raise your hand if you would like one of the blue Bibles? It can be hand-delivered to you. Uh, it's just a huge blessing. And if you don't have a Bible, we, we hope that you would take this home. Like, it's our gift to you. It can become your personal uh, Bible. So I'm going to read the scripture passage Uh, And then I'm going to introduce our speaker for tonight. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Uh, So I met Chris, Chris Lake, our our, our preacher tonight, in March of 2014, uh, when he came to Emmanuel Church in Chelmsford, Emmanuel's our parent church, and asked us if we would host a little like seminar conference for pastors in the building. Uh, and he brought this book about frontline ministry. It was called Imagine Church. It was this idea that all of life uh, can be worship unto God. And that's not a crazy idea, but sometimes it's an idea that we forget. And that was the first time that I read this book, and I was really inspired. How can we as a church uh, emphasize all of life, the ordinary, as a way to honor and glorify God? And so it was through that initial meeting that uh, I, we began to, to learn at Emmanuel Church about uh, frontline ministry. We did uh, the Life on the Frontline study, Fruitfulness on the Frontline study, and then we've done some of those things here at Cornerstone. Uh, The more I've gotten to know Chris, the more I've seen his heart for worship, his heart for worship in all things, uh, in the every day. And I consider you a friend, Chris. I'm grateful that you're here tonight, so don't mess it up. Uh, I'm sure you'll be great. Uh, But let's just welcome Chris uh, with a round of applause. Thank you. All right, well, great. It's such a privilege to be uh, here with you this uh, weekend and um, this Thanksgiving weekend. I'm, I am thankful for you as a church community. I feel like a part of the family. I especially love that um, foundation verse. You're memorizing scripture kind of takes me back to when I uh, became a Christian in college and we were always getting to the word and memorizing scripture. And I like how you added uh, verse 10 because we always kind of dropped it after verse 9. I like the part where you include the uh, making uh, good work as well. So that ties in right in what we're talking about today. So yeah, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, I am part of a group that's called the Veer Institute um, that came out of this work about frontline ministry about four years ago. In fact, that session that Jonathan mentioned was as we were just getting started and we didn't really know um, where God might be leading us. And um, out of that ministry, uh, or out of that time, we realized that um, many churches would benefit from this emphasis on how does our everyday life impact the glory of God? And so, so anyway, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I thought I'd give you just a little bit about my background so that you might understand perhaps the, the perspective um, that I'm, I'm coming from. So uh, I grew up in Colorado, uh, in a landlocked state, and um, you know, I watched this movie. It was really impactful when I was 14 years old. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's Top Gun. And... Uh, <laughs> And um, that movie, like, changed my life forever. I'm not kidding. Um, I thought, you know what, this, 
this is, this is what I need to do. I need to be Maverick. I mean, I could fly around, you know, saving the world from the Russians. I could be playing beach volleyball. I'm going to end up with Meg Ryan. Like, this is, why, you know, why wouldn't I want to ha um, have that kind of life? So, so I, I decided, most people kind of got over that as soon as they walked out of the theater. But for some reason, it, it didn't happen to me. And so uh, fast forward a few years, and I'm in college, and uh, I'm in ROTC. And so um, I went through RTC, um, I got commissioned, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a minute, and I spent 10 years of my life in the Navy. Um, from, from there I got out and spent some time at IBM and a couple startups, and so, so yeah, that's kind of a quick and dirty on my background and where I'm coming from. So as far as my faith journey is concerned, I became a Christian, as I mentioned, in college. So some people kind of came around and um, were knocking on doors and, and sharing the gospel with, with me. And of course, I didn't really get it, but uh, God kind of just penetrated my life at a very um, momentous, mo momentous time. And I realized, wow, I mean, God is not some distant entity, but God is like right here, right now. I, I could sense his presence. And, and from that moment on, uh, my life was never the same. And of course, any, when you become a Christian, your priorities completely get flipped. I mean, everything is changes. And so um, all of a sudden, I'm spending time you know, in the Word. I'm, I'm memorizing Scripture. I'm leading Bible studies. I'm walking around the campus sharing my faith, all this kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, there was one downside. Uh, I, I kind of contracted what I would consider a theological disease. Um, and it was this idea that you know, some things, like the things I just mentioned, were like really important to God. You know, um, studying the Word and those types of things. And they were really important to God. But unfortunately, I also... Uh, a side note on that was I thought some things weren't that important to God. And, you know, for one thing, maybe my studies. Um, for one thing, maybe going to classes. Um, that kind of thing. And so I ended up uh, barely graduating. Um, there's this little slogan, which is kind of my slogan, which is D stands for diploma. So uh, I kind of squeaked my way through. And literally, I was not sure I was going to graduate that moment. Um, that I walked up on that stage, but God, in his graciousness, allowed me to get my degree, and I moved on. Well, the, the situation that I was suffering from was a, a situation that many of us uh, as, as believers may feel, and this is the idea that um, some things are really important to God, but not all things, and that's the sacred-secular divide, the belief that some things, but not all things, really matter to God. And it's kind of interesting because I might have memorized uh, verses like um, we talked about before, doing everything for the glory of God. And I was teaching these things, but somehow that didn't penetrate my ideas of what it means to live uh, faithfully and fruitfully for God in the everyday life. And so, you know, this may sound like, oh, that's kind of a weird theoretical problem. This is... Um, some statistics, and it's kind of hard to read there, but uh, this is the real-world impact of the sacred-secular divine. 60% of Christians, uh, American Christians, have no clarity about their calling. 70% uh, are unsure how their work serves God. 78% think their work is less valuable than the pastor. And so the result is a majority of Christians don't believe that God can use them in their everyday in their everyday life. And can you imagine that, like if a company was like this, if like 60% of the people had no idea what they were doing there and that, you know, were just unsure, like what is the point of this whole organization? Like it probably wouldn't last very long, right? But that's the situation in the evangelical church uh, today. And so um, I think this, the passage we're looking at today, the Great Commission, as it's called, um, takes the idea of the sacred-secular divide head on. 
You can see this in some of the words he says. All authority has been given to me. All nations obey everything. I'm with you always. It's, it's pervasiveness. It's a whole life call. It's not just for Sundays. It's not just for certain times of the week. It's not just for certain people. It's not just for certain seasons of life. It's for all time. That's why they call it the Great Commission. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I was commissioned into the Navy when I finished my ROTC time. And as I think back about that day, it was a you know, wonderful uh, time. You know, I'd spent four years training, learning how to you know, shine my shoes and polish my buckle and give a proper salute. And, and so um, the, the big day came, and my, my family flew out from Colorado. I was in Illinois at the time. And uh, we had a, a momentous occasion. They had an admiral there to kind of make this thing all kind of very festive and to make sure it was official. And so there were three things that happened that day that, um, that I remember. The first is I had to raise my, my right hand and take an oath. I said, you know, I, uh, I affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So at that moment, I realized I was not just living for myself. I was part of a larger organization. I was living for a greater purpose. Secondly, um, people, you know, the day before who would kind of tell me to, to clean the latrines, now they were saluting me. Now they were calling me sir, and it was very bizarre, and I didn't really deserve it, but that's kind of how the system works, so I kind of went along with it. I found out I had a new authority. I had a new power because of this commissioning. And the third uh, aspect of it is I was in the, the presence of my family. My, my dad had actually put my little shoulder boards on. He had served in the military, and so he had served in the Navy. And, you know, I was in the presence of my family, my father. And so here I see uh, lots of parallels, three specific parallels between our passage here in, in Matthew 28 and my experience. First of all, we, we go with purpose. Um, we go with power. And we go in the presence of our Father. So Jesus uh, gives us this commission uh, to the church. This is our mission statement for all time, the capital C's church mission statement. And so I was really thrilled that Jonathan was let, let me uh, preach on this uh, today because this is what we're all about. We are here as Christians to make disciples, disciples who are sent out um, to serve the world, uh, disciples who love God, who love others. And so um, I guess the begs the question of what is a disciple? I mean, we, if this is the main thing we're supposed to be doing, I th think we need to have some clarity on what exactly we're supposed to be making. So this is a definition from um, Neil Hudson, and, and we mentioned we started the Veer Institute. I should have mentioned that um, the Veer Institute is connected to a, a group in London called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And so they're all about kind of connecting Sunday to Monday for Christians. And so this is the definition from Neil Hudson, who's the director of the Imagine program. He says a disciple is someone who is learning to live the way of Jesus in their context at this moment. Learning to live the way of Jesus in their context at this moment. So a couple things you'll notice about that. First of all, the context is always changing. So whether you're a student, whether you're a parent, whether you're um, get, going into your first job, you're kind of learning, okay, what does it mean to live like Jesus in this place? Um, it's something that we don't take a class, you take a discipleship 101 class, and suddenly you're a full-fledged disciple and you, you've got it made, right? This is something that's continually, we're learning how to do it, and it, it doesn't ever end, right? 
So we think about what does it mean to live as a disciple, to live in a way that's constantly learning, in a way that reflects Christ in every, every moment. So that brings us to, okay, well, if a disciple is singular, the, the plural of disciple is church. And today we're uh, gathered to, uh, as a community of believers, and this, this slide represents um, uh, the church, so the gathered church. So there's 100 dots. You can count them if you want um, to back me up. But uh, the 100 dots, there's nine blue ones, and there's 91 gray ones. And the nine blue ones represent approximately, it's hard to know exactly, but approximately the number of evangelicals in the state of Massachusetts. So I'm not sure how you might feel when you see that slide. I mean, I've shown this slide to people around the country, and they, they'll say, I feel kind of discouraged. You know, I feel like, oh, man, that's, I mean, that's, a lot of work left to do, right? I mean, you think about the per person in the upper left-hand corner. If we're going to reach that person for Christ, then it's going to take a long time, right? We might say, oh, let's do something missional, or let's, let's do some sort of outreach, and we'll kind of scurry among the gray dots, and then we'll kind of scurry back, and we'll say, how'd it go, you know, and we kind of huddle up, and <laughs> we say, oh, that was great. All right, well, you go do it. I don't want to do it, right? So um, you might feel a little overwhelmed, but you see a, a totally different picture when you show this slide. It's the same number of blue dots, um, but we're scattered. This is the, this scattered church. This is our Monday through uh, Friday, Saturday life. Um, and so entirely different picture. Suddenly the person in the upper left-hand corner, you know, there's, we have a couple people on the scene, um, right? You know, there's a chance that uh, we can reach them with the gospel. And so for this to work, two things have to remain true. Uh, first of all, um, the blue dots need to stay blue, right? I mean, it's no point if the blue dots scatter and they, um, they don't, and they gray out. So that's what we're, uh, during the commissioning, which was really encouraging and so neat to see so many people being willing to be sent out intentionally for Christ, um, we, to live um, ethically, to, to work with excellence, to want to share our faith evangelistically. That's, you have to stay blue. And the second is you have to kind of own the place that you're sent. And for some people, that's great because they're in a place that they exactly want to be and you feel like God just put you there and everything's kind of going swimmingly. But for the vast majority of Christians, actually, they don't really want to be. We don't really want to be where God has placed us. This happened to me after um, I got out of the Navy and um, right at that point in time, I was living overseas and we moved back to the States. It took me more than a year to get a job. And um, the job that I ended up getting was not the job I was, in fact, it was the job I was trying to avoid. And I remember just kind of sitting there in the office thinking like, looking out the window, just staring out, out into space saying, why am I here? Like, I don't want to be here. This is not the life that I had pictured for myself. And I'm like, God, kind of get me out of here. And you realize that, you know, he doesn't have to, he put me there for a reason now. I didn't have this um, idea about how I can worship God with my everyday life at that time. But I was just kind of like, oh, man, I'm, I'm just kind of lost here. And um, I think a lot of times Christians feel like that. Why am you putting me here? Why have, why have you given me this illness? Why have you given, um, taken away my job? Why have, you know, why do my kids have problems, right? Um, and it feels like we're in exile. And then you kind of open up the scriptures and you realize most of the time, the people of God are in exile, coming into, going out of, but they're in places where they don't think they really want to be. And, and Jesus calls us to be faithful in those places, even when we choose not to be there. And so, um, so the scattered church is where um, 
really, we interact with people who may not know the faith, and those are the chances that we have to live out our faith in our, in our everyday. So a metaphor that LICC, the, the London Institute, came up with to describe these places where the, gray, uh, the blue and the gray dots intersect, it's called the front line. So, you know, I have an experience with the front line. I got kind of sent uh, to the Persian Gulf and spent a lot of time over there. And you realize that's where the real action is, right? They, they have, we have our headquarters here in the States, but overseas is where the real action is. And it's the same with you. Your Monday through Friday, your Saturday life, that is where God is primarily at work in mission. Through you, through his scattered people. And a way to kind of hammer this point home is to do a little math. And so, um, so in a given week, there's 168 hours, yeah, and um, if you sleep for 48, just to make the math easy, that leaves you 120 hours. So the most any one of us would probably spend in gathered church activities is 10. So if you subtract 120 minus 10, you end up with 110. It's 110 hours when we are the scattered church, when we are called to make a difference um, in, uh, for his kingdom in the everyday places. So then the question becomes, how does the gathered church intersect with the scattered church? And I believe Jonathan preached on this last week um, about Ephesians 4. So part of Jonathan's job is to help create an environment where the saints are equipped to do the work of ministry, the work of your frontline ministry, the everyday places. How do you do it with excellence, with integrity, and evangelistically in those places? So, so that's the point. Jesus wants to help us to live in his power um, with his, uh, uh, for his purposes, with his power, and in his presence. So this slide um, de- depicts uh, a, a book that I recently read by Andy Crouch. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's called Strong and Weak. And it's the idea that um, every, every Christian, or every person, really, uh, what does it look like to... Um, go in power. And so when we think about power, sometimes we think, oh, okay, power is kind of negative, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to have authority um, in, in life, right? You think about Jesus has all authority has been given to me, therefore go. So he's, in a sense, conferring his power um, for us. But when we go, we don't necessarily go in the power as the world does. We go in a way that's vulnerable. You think about Jesus being having all that power, but yet embodied in a vulnerable human being. You know, he came as a baby. He died on a cross, right? So he is high authority, high vulnerability, and that's what we see on this slide. So the upper left-hand corner um, would be called the exploiting corner. So that's basically you have high authority and low vulnerability. So you might think of like a dictator, like North Korea or something like that. So um, you're exploiting other people. The bottom left-hand corner, it would be called withdrawing. So that's basically you have low authority and you're low vulnerability. So we actually all kind of do this one when we go on vacation. But you imagine if you're on permanent vacation and you just kind of pull away from life and you're, you have nothing to do with anyone, you have low authority, low uh, vulnerability. The bottom right is the suffering quadrant. So basically you have low authority and you're highly vulnerable. Think about what's happening in California with the fires. These people are, are suffering, right? They have low authority, low vulnerability, and high vulnerability. And finally, what you, the, the goal is, of course, the upper right-hand cor- corner, if you're in consulting, you know you always want to go up and to the right. One thing I learned from IBM. And so, um, so you want to be in the flourishing quadrant, right? So you think about you want to increase your authority. That's our natural tendency. But we probably gradually tor- uh, gra- uh, move towards the upper left-hand corner. We Andy Crouch would encourage us to, as we increase our authority, to increase our vulnerability because that's how we can make a difference. And uh, to make the point, um, just put flesh on it, 
I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, uh, Zach McLeod. Some of you may know Zach. Um, he's a fellow Park Streeter uh, with me. So 10 years ago, Zach um, was playing football and suffered a traumatic brain injury and went into a coma. He's kind of iffy for a while. He came out of the coma, but he's never the same. And that's him on the right there uh, with his former team. And you might think, oh, how is, how is Zach flourishing um, in this situation? You know, he's, a, he's a believer. And I think a better question is, this, how, who is flourishing because of Zach? Now, if you, if you meet Zach, um, he's, he's a, probably the most joyous person you, you could ever meet. Uh, he's giving you hugs. He's high-fiving you. These are people he's never met. Like, you're walking in, and he's like, all of a sudden, you're in a bear hug with Zach. And so he's, he's bringing joy to people. Um, Secondly, he's bringing joy to his teammates. This is um, from a picture in the Boston Globe this week. Um, th their team was going to be in the championship, and he's an encouragement to that team, right? He's, he's still taking that, serious, that call seriously to kind of be on his front lines, which would be this football team, to, to, um, to live in a way that is missional, even if he can't fully put it together, and that's what he's doing. And, and finally, just with, with the church community, he reminds each of us that we are all vulnerable, that we all need to care for, for one another, because really the true test of any um, human community is how we treat our most vulnerable, right? So how do we treat the people with the least amount of authority? And so he's a, a reminder of that. So that's our, our second point. And then the third point is Jesus invites us to go out in his presence. Um, it's an amazing thing. Like, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We don't go alone, right? And this is the big fear. Ever since the, the Garden of Eden, we, we're, we're alone, and, and God is reaching out. Where are you, Adam, right? And, and finally, Jesus comes, and he invites us to be in his presence wherever we go. And so how do we demonstrate um, the fact that we are not alone uh, that we are connected to Jesus, that we are connected to the vine. He tells us in, in John 15, 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So if we're living in his presence, if we're spending time with him personally, we're spending time with him corporately, we're seeing his presence in our corporate life together, we will show that by our fruit. Now, so Jonathan mentioned this book, the idea of the fruit being fruitful on the front line, right? So in the military, we were kind of called to go out and defend the country. As believers, we we're called to go out and bless the world, to be uh, fruitful in those places. And um, the, the model that is in this book, um, Fruitfulness on the Front Line, is called the 6M model. And uh, so I know we talked, uh, Jonathan talked about um, a theology of work, so I won't go too much into that, but... Um, these are the six M's. Number one, just make good work, right? Do it with excellence. Number two, model godly character. Um, so when I was in the Navy, uh, you know, I, I had an annual performance review, and, you know, they had all these things that they would say. But I don't remember ever once they saying, you know, you think about being a model and godly character, like, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? I don't remember ever any time my commanding officer saying, your joy was just incredible this year, you know? Like, you had so much uh, love for everyone. Like, they weren't training me to be loving, you right? They were training me to be a warrior. So, like, it wasn't really important. And it's probably the same in, in your everyday place. Maybe the world isn't going to reward you for showing patience or, or kindness or gentleness or faithfulness or self-control. But these are the things that display that you're part of a countercultural kingdom, a place that you're part of a, um, uh, Jesus's life, really an extension of his life. And, you know, what does it mean to minister grace and love, uh, right? The third M there. Um, 
To illustrate that point, I'll share with you a story about my friend Ruth. Now, Ruth works in a human resources role in the city of Cambridge, and her job is basically to hire the people that keep the city clean, right? So um, the people who are kind of the, the, the janitorial help around the city. And it's not the most glamorous types of work, right? And so um, you know, Ruth, that's her job, though. And so she, she chooses those people. And you know, one day she said, you know what, I really kind of want to understand what it's like to be in these jobs. So she shadowed the cleaners that she had hired. And she found out that um, they were uh, eating their lunch break in this, like, dingy stock room. And she's like, you know, why are you kind of eating here? And they, they told her... We can, well, it's our job to just kind of blend in, to be invisible. Like, no one thought to provide us a place to have, have lunch, right? And, and, and my friend Ruth is like, what? That's, that's not right. Like, I mean, you're pe- people are made in the image of God. Like, you're having your lunch break in this stingy place. So she took, took it to her boss, and she said, you know what? You know, we, we got to do something about this. This isn't right. So they, she got some funds released so they could um, have their, their lunch break in a in a place with dignity, you know, a place where they can kind of get to know one another better. And, and so you might think, well, you know, what's the big deal about that? So some money got released, and okay, so they have a little nicer lunch break. But the point is Ruth, as a follower of Jesus, was doing that because she believed in these people have inherent dignity as human beings, and they needed to have a place that reflected that. And so, you know, it reminds me of in Matthew 25 when Jesus rewards people just because they give them a glass of water, and you're like, Jesus, what are you, you're giving us rewards? Like, we didn't even realize we were giving it to you, and he says, you gave it just as you gave it to me. You visited people in prisons. That's as if you did it to me, and it's these little things that make a difference to the kingdom. What does it mean to mold culture, to, to influence the place uh, on your front line that, uh, you know, in a way that honors Christ? What does it mean to be a mouthpiece for truth and justice? Not just when it's your own truth and your own justice, but when other people are at risk. Um, it's, it's a challenge. And finally, what does it mean to be a messenger of the gospel. Um, sorry, I went too far. So this is a, a, um, a way you might think about your sharing your faith. It's called the four tables uh, strategy. So in the upper left-hand uh, corner, you'll see a, a table which represents your work table, right? So as you do your, your work well, you earn the right to be heard. Um, you have a chance to perhaps move to the upper right-hand table, which is the um, the coffee table. And so maybe you might invite someone to uh, have a cup of coffee just to get to know them, hear their story. They can hear a little bit of yours as the Holy Spirit leads you. And the bottom left-hand corner would be the um, the barbecue table or, or a um, family dinner table. And maybe just invite them into um, a conversation with your spouse or with a few of your Christian friends. And they, uh, as you get to know them and they get to be introduced into the Christian community and maybe it's a way that's not quite so threatening as you know, uh, coming to something they might not be familiar with like a uh, Sunday or Saturday evening service. And then the bottom right-hand corner is, of course, the Lord's table. We want people to come to a saving faith with Christ. And so, but this, this gives a process where maybe... Um, People can, or you might be able to think about how you might interact with people on your front line in the everyday places. So that's the the sixth M, being a a messenger of the gospel. So as as we kind of wrap up, um, I just want to encourage you. This is so um, wonderful to be here and see you everyone being willing to be commissioned onto your front line. And, and we're, we're reminded that in the Great Commission, all of us are, are being sent out intentionally to, to live um, for Jesus, for his purposes, um, with his power, and in his presence um, for the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with that, uh, let us pray. 
Father, um, we thank you so much that you have uh, given us a great commission. Um, You've given us purpose in life, that you have given us your power and your authority, that you have given us um, your your presence. And Father, we we can be overwhelmed by, in a sense, the responsibility of that, yet we know that you are the one who makes everything happen, that you are the one who sustains us and guides us um, through our each and every day. So we ask that you would... um, just empower us as we go from here, that we would uh, sense your presence, that we would know your power, and that we would um, live for uh, your purposes in everything that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.